trending news right now. Okay, never mind about that music. We'll see if we can fit it in later in the show. But uh, we need to get into our trending uh, topics, looking at what's happened in the world of social media. That is the last 24 hours. Mighty Jamie joining us, uh, who is researcher, analyst and social commentator. Our time now, 19 minutes past four. A terrific Tuesday to you, Mighty. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for making time. Let's get straight to it. Uh, Maybe let's start uh, overseas there in the UK. Rishi Sunak, let's talk about the new Prime Minister of Britain. History being made there. Yes, a lot of history was made yesterday, you know, because uh, Britain finally has, uh, you know, a British-Asian Prime Minister, somebody actually who has a diverse history. His father coming from one of the colonies, Kenya, mm. and you know um, his family, uh, his his wife's side coming from India, and then also, interestingly, him being a Hindi. So yesterday was Diwali, and it was a, a quite an interesting moment for him to ascend to that particular position on that particular day. It was very very important, you know, um, to the Indian community, the Asian community more broadly. And, you know, it was a historic moment, a moment of first, um, because obviously we are all familiar with the history of the United Kingdom. And so it, it was something of a, a big moment historically to say this is how diverse the country has become to the point where you can have, you know, a British Asian um, prime minister ascending to that particular position, having obviously occupied the position of uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer before. Yes, and also the youngest prime minister since yes. 1812. Yes, yes, very young. I think he's coming in at 42, so that also would make him one of the youngest people to actually occupy this kind of a position, definitely. The challenges that exist uh, with Rishi Sunak, though, are the democratic challenges and the economic challenges. Yes. So the democratic challenge being that, of course, he was not elected um, you know, um, by the members of his party, and also, you know, he didn't run as the prime ministerial candidate. So many people are very uh, frustrated that somebody who had 40% support of his party, less than 100,000, uh, gets to determine the economic policies for the next two years. And so they are very, um, you know, unhappy with that and are saying that there should be a general election after, of course, we saw that, that Liz Truss uh, prime ministership collapsed. The other side as well of this particular equation is that Rishi Sunak um, and his family are worth over £750 million, and he is coming in to implement austerity measures, measures that will, uh, you know, adversely affect the poorest communities in the United uh, Kingdom, most of whom are minorities. Mm. So from the economic perspective and the democratic perspective, he's facing some challenges. Internally within his party, he did get 200 members of parliament to support him, but there are about 350 or so of them, uh, 150 held out because they don't support him. So he still has an internal party challenge as well. The unification of the party is something that he said he will do, but it's not something that is very likely right now considering the internal party dynamics. What do you make of the competition he got or received from former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who then later pulled out, of course, on the 23rd of October? Did things pan out the way that you would have predicted there? Uh, Well, you know, Boris Johnson went to see whether he had some support, but I think what he encountered was, number one, that he didn't have uh, full support of 
the parliamentary caucus of the party because like Rishi at the time when he when Boris was trying to get the numbers which he did say he got the hundred threshold um, that he found that more people were still pushing resistance towards him and number two um, which is going to be even harder for him he still has a disciplinary hearing so when you um, have this kind of a situation where you don't have the preponderance of support from the parliamentary caucus and you still have a hearing, what what actually indicated to him was that I may be able to get um, to the position because he's polling at 80% with the party membership and Rishi Sunak was polling at under 20% in the party membership. The challenge then would be, yes, you can get into power, but can you stay in power when your own parliament doesn't support you? Well, less than a week after Liz Truss said deuces, uh, we'll see uh, what the... uh, But also, what does that uh, read into in terms of your analysis? That it's just been a week since uh, Liz Truss stepped down and uh, already we've got a new prime minister. Is it uh, maybe an urgency in terms of these plans that he's speaking of, uniting the Conservative Party, uh, turning the economy around? Well, well, I mean, the decisions were made by uh, Sir Graham Brady, who's the chairperson of the... Uh, 1922 committee um, which makes this kind of determination. So what they did is because they did not want to scare the market, they made sure that there would be number one, a high threshold, and number two, a very short uh, period of time for campaigning. In fact, it was designed in a way to help Rishi Sunak be able to be the only candidate really who was able to meet all of the criteria by Monday, which was the day wherein you had to declare how many candidates you had. And if there was no um, nobody else in contestation, you would be able to get to the top. So there are some challenges which exist for Rishi Sunak because after the um, you know period has passed, some people are going to say, "Hang on a minute, we don't actually think that this was the best way to actually choose, uh, even from the party perspective, the next prime minister." And we feel that the party membership and the official registered membership of the party is over 200,000 members. Mm. And in the last contest, Rishi Sunak lost uh, to Liz Trust. So there is going to be some frustration within the rank and file of his party that, you know, this guy actually lost the election. He got 40% of the vote in the last election between himself and Liz Trust. And as a result, you know, there's going to be some frustration. But uh, it is what it is. This is the weekend that he gets. And I think they really wanted to get to a position where he can start addressing the economic challenges. Where it's going to be tricky for him, and we'll begin to get an assessment of it, mm. is from tomorrow, because Prime Minister's questions are tomorrow, and we'll see where Labour is, where the other uh, parties are, and also get a feel for where the rest of the United Kingdom uh, is, because there's going to be some polling and some of that data is going to start tricking into the newsrooms. And then we'll see. There may be a lot of pressure, actually, ultimately for an early election. If there is an early election, right now the polling indicates that, um, you know, the Conservative Party will be wiped out in that election. They are polling very badly at the moment. All right, let's come home then. Hashtag state capture. Questions around what the capture state capture report means then for ANC members who have been implicated in that report. Uh, we know Minister Gwede Mantashe is there, Deputy Minister Zizi Kodwa. So what do you think will happen? Well, that's one of the tougher questions um, because the president said, you know, I've noted these, uh, you know, um, complaints against people who are actually in my cabinet who are occupying senior positions. Some of those names are in the top six of the ANC. 
And he said that, you know, they'll, they'll look into it effectively. And I think that's where the challenge really exists for the State Capture Commission because while I think 165 names are right now being, you know, uh, pursued at various stages of uh, investigation by the NPA, the challenge really is about the masterminds, the big names. And it doesn't look like right now there's a lot of capacity or appetite to actually go for those names. And this is where the challenge is, just because the president does have some, um, you know, capacity to remove those people by himself. He can make them step aside. He can fire them. As the president, he basically appoints the executive. But he has chosen not to do that, Mm -hmm. even after having had the report in his possession for months. So this actually undercuts the credibility of uh, the rhetoric around we're fighting corruption when, in fact, there are people who, one, took um, monies from Guptas and other people, and number two, um, who actually were implicated by witnesses in ways that, um, you know, lead to a concern around whether or not they are beyond reproach when it comes to the question of corruption. As you say, I mean, it could be seen as a... I guess, I don't know if you can say shooting himself on the foot, because he did mention the president speaking of corruption as being a crime against the people of South Africa. So how do you say that and then also not take into all consideration all the recommendations? But I mean, it's 350 recommendations. One wonders if all would be acted upon from the commission. Well, yeah, I think a lot of, for a lot of people, it's not really about the number of names, but, I mean, the status of those names. Because, you know, in any criminal syndicate, if we look at, you know, corruption syndicates as criminal syndicates, they are masterminds, they are, you know, middle managers, and then they are foot soldiers. So the question really becomes, if you are going to fight corruption, are you simply going to get a few of the foot soldiers? Or are you actively going to really go and get the masterminds and the people who actually were taking large amounts of money in exchange for promises of tenders, promises of preferential legislation to, the, to, to that effect? So it's, it's really going to be a challenge of credibility in the long term because part of this commission is that, you know, it, it, the promise was we're going to understand state capture and then we're going to pass laws that will prevent future capture, but also, in addition, will be able to hold some people to account. If we get to a position where, you know, people are in 2024 looking and saying, hey, you didn't do anything about 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, because they're very powerful in the ANC, I think that will become something that affects the party at the, you know, election box. Talking of other parties, let's move on to the DA, the former Johannesburg mayor, Mpo Palazze, announcing that she may be meeting with the Democratic Alliance's federal executive this week. It's after the DA rejected her proposal. She was proposing to work with the economic freedom fighters. Yes, so she said that, you know, she had a path to retaining the mayorship if she had worked with the EFF and uh, some other parties and that the DA basically said, no, don't touch the EFF. We don't want to do any business with them. And that was her understanding of why they were unable to retain uh, the city of Johannesburg. And she further said that, you know, she wasn't given an opportunity to make a strategic presentation. And then Helen Zillig got there and said, look, we're never going to do a deal with the EFF. And secondly, she did get many opportunities to, um, you know, give her case. And we tried to see if there was a path towards achieving that. It seems as if she may now be facing some form of discipline um, in that meeting with the Federal Council of the DA. Um, and, and that may be something that begins her journey 
um, out of the Democratic Alliance. They really cannot afford at this particular point, though, mm-hmm. to lose another highly prominent, highly qualified uh, black m- member of their leadership because that will, I think, be the straw that breaks the camel's back because if you keep losing powerful independent people who are within your party simply because they take a position different to that of Helen Ziller or John Steinazen, that's really going to be something that underscores the fact that the party is no longer committed to the national project. This is a country that has an 80% uh, black representation. It's a country that is coming from a period of hard domination by a white minority and that history is not forgotten by people and is still very, very much part of their lived realities because they see it in their offices, they see it in the wealth uh, you know, distribution of the nation, they see it in the in the income distribution. So if you then, you know, think that you can move past that without being considerate of the optics of it and also the principles behind it, it's going to be very tricky. But also the, they have to really reflect as a democratic alliance, can they afford to know to keep going against smaller parties that are growing at a period in time where they are going smaller if they want to be part of governing coalitions. I mean, the EFF crossed the 10% threshold uh, in the last election. They seem to be growing, but the Democratic Alliance has fragmented in three ways now. You've got the DA, Steinhazen, then you've got the new DA, say, and then you've also got uh, the Build One South Africa part of the, 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 the fragmentation and under Musi Maimani. So it's not exactly clear how much of that support they're going to keep for 2024. They were part of the victims of low voter turnout uh, in 2021 uh, in November. Uh, the ANC and the DA experienced the largest drops in voter turnout. Of course, that turnout was affected to some extent by the pandemic, but uh, the biggest um, you know, parties to experience a shortfall with those two parties, uh, the ANC and the Democratic Alliance. Well, she does say, uh, former mayor, um, Paul Palazzo, that she was not asking for a coalition with the EFF, but a sort of working relationship. How successful can this approach be? I mean, if we look at the tried and tested incidents of a working relationship instead of a coalition. Well, you know, I think um, at some level that's just semantics, right? If they're voting with you to keep you in power, and they're voting for your budget, even if they don't take positions in that particular administration, effectively you are in some kind of, uh, you know, a coalition, working arrangement, whatever you want to call it. Mm. You guys need each other to stay in power. Has it worked before? It did work. It did work under Herman Mashaba. He was able to stay in office for a very long period of time as a result of a working relationship with the EFF. Um, so it can work. It does work. Um, it, it's, it's a path. If their real commitment is we want to keep the ANC out, we believe we've got a better path to service delivery for the majority of the people of Johannesburg or any other metro that we occupy. I think that they would have been you know, uh, open to a variety of arrangements. The reality is the, the time of um, you know grandstanding politics is not available or even the reality anymore in, in the South African context. You know we are getting to a point now where we are maturing, and that means that the, the other parties are getting a larger share of the pie, and we have to work towards uh, working in a professional multi-party environment. And sometimes that means trying to navigate your space. If uh, the Democratic Alliance begins to be one of the parties that becomes, 
you know, recalcitrant or like belligerent as well in the way that they navigate the space. This is going to add to more dysfunction in the political space, not less. All right, let's move to the world of entertainment or fashion. Uh, hashtag SA Fashion Week. And Bali, the actor or actress now turned into fashion designer. So she displayed her creations there on uh, 20th October in uh, Midrand. I love stories like this when we as people realize how multi-talented we are and we explore all other things that we can do. Yeah, that's great, you know, and, and we still need to grow and strengthen our fashion sector. And it's good to have as many players as possible and, you know, um, to try to diversify the the space. Uh, there's a lot of challenges because as we still know a lot of brands that people wear, Adidas, Balenciaga, all of these high-end brands are still very mm. European, still very American. So um, there's a need in the space for more local brands. What's good, though, is that we've seen with the footwear, at least, that there's been uh, some appreciation and diversification if you look at blockchain culture, which didn't, you know, make it to the very end, but was one of the pioneers. If yeah. you look now at Drip and Batu, if you look at what's happening with Tepo Jeans, uh, th- there's a lot that's coming into the space. And I think that when you have a strong fashion industry locally, that definitely helps, you know, because down down the road, the textile production then becomes very localized. Uh, you know, the, the, the tax benefits become localized. So it's a great journey for her. It's a good diversification, uh, strong steps on the local economy, something that we should all, uh, you know, appreciate and embrace and try to really encourage more people to do this. But it also has to be with us actually going into those shops to say mm. to the, you know, store owners, to the big brands, uh, where, the, you know, the big retail brands, where are the local designers? We need racks with local designers, not just a few just to tick the box or from a BE perspective. But we really want you guys to start stocking local designs that really are contemporary, that speak to where we are, and that also speak to our history and diversity. Well, on her part, I think she's doing great. She's uh, also received an International Fashion Award at uh, Fashion Community Week in San Francisco back in 2022. So may she keep rising and uh, as you say our fashion industry as well may it keep rising let's leave it on that note (laughs) mighty thanks again for for your time plans for the rest of the week well um i mean just work uh, but we'll just be watching some of the stuff that's happening because uh, you know the u.s is getting closer to election day as well and just unpacking some of the stuff that has happened in china because you know uh, xi jinping has come in as well so these are going to be quite interesting times for global history Somebody once said that, you know, the period between 2020 and 2022 is one that's going to be the hardest to really prepare for for future history exams. And we're living through it. So there's a lot actually years to keep an eye on. But I'm going to be looking at the American elections more closely simply because election season is about to reach that final lap. Awesome stuff. Well, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate your time. Mighty Jamie, researcher, analyst and social commentator discussing trending news on SAFM Sound Awake.